Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Tonaris Podcast. This is a remote podcast uh, with myself and Timmy and one of our tortoise shack colleagues. Martin McMahon has kindly agreed to come on and share his story with us. Um, we'll go back to the very start, Martin, for the people that don't know you. Who are you and where are you from? Um, my name is Martin. I'm from uh, Dublin, the, the north side of Dublin originally. Well, County Dublin, as it used to be known. Fingal now. Grew up there. Lived all around Dublin. Uh, been abroad for a while and came back. So that's exactly who I am. Where were you when you were abroad? I was in London for a while. I was in Greece for a while. Um, yeah, I love the two places. I have to say, each had their own thing to offer. You know, what was Greece mm. like? I loved it. I sure it was hand to mouth, but I loved it. You know, it was real hand to mouth stuff, but I did love it. It was just uh, a total difference. Real hedonistic place. You know, mm. I have, mm. con- I have yeah. an uncle living over there at the moment. He's living in uh, Paphos. Yeah. He's living in the mountains over there. This is a guy now that basically couldn't sit still for two minutes. And he went over there, uh, lived in the mountains with his his girlfriend. This man now is in his 60s. And we were all saying, like, this fella has to come back at some stage, right? To our, our amaze, he's still over there. Probably two years now he's living there. And he has a job as a grave digger. <laughs> by no shovel. Way. This fella, no, like, I just... That's so But he keeps asking us to go over there because um, he said it's amazing. The weather is fantastic. He says it does get a bit warm now in September and uh, uh, August and July. But um, he says we'll we'll definitely pop off to him at some stage, you know. He's a a funny character as well. Ah, yeah, and the people there are lovely. I just think they're very like ourselves. They're just chatty and, you know, a few drinks and a bit of a laugh. I think they're really nice people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find that as well. I when I was in Portugal, a couple, I think the Portuguese are very, uh, very similar to the Irish in many ways. The times that they're laid back and the personality, the countryside, the cultures. I see a lot of. I love Portugal, you know. But you know, before you you're into the podcasting, Martin. Before you got into the podcasting, what was your day job? What what kind of work were you doing? I had been working in a, a manufacturing plant. Um, I've been about ten years there. And then I got cancer and, uh, very, you know, you think you'd be back in six weeks, but it didn't turn out that way. So, um, I've been officially out of the workforce since then. And that's about 10, 10 years ago. Um, so have you, 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 you've had cancer for over 10 years? Yeah. 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 Have. Yeah. Fuck. Fuck. That's yeah. unreal. Now what it's kind of better now. It's uh, yeah. malig- malignant melanoma. It started in a mole on my backside, 
but by the time I found out it was uh, it was a problem, sure it had spread other places mm-hmm. as well. So then it just it was just for, the first five years was non-stop battle and then you get used to fighting and it becomes easier you know and the the next there's nothing huge going on at the moment but you never know you know you just don't know Mm. yeah is that why no don't take this the wrong way (laughs) is that why you you've no hair is that is is it through chemotherapy or something yeah well you know i was already going bald Uh, i'll be straight about it was already Mm. losing it but uh that did accelerated it a bit and then when it came back it was patchy and mm. all over the place so uh that and i used to drive motorbikes and your head smells like a sweaty old sock if you've long hair <laughs> so you end up shaving it off anyway yeah i agree <laughs> do, you know, do you know when you had when you had that mole like how did it come to your attention did you have symptoms before you realized that it was it or was there visible signs of growth or well, I used to knock myself out about it for ages. The, you know, why didn't I spot it sooner or why didn't I do that sooner? And it, the first it came, I really noticed it. I was coming back from Spain, holiday with the, the kids and the wife. And I had the little one sitting on my lap. It was just real itchy. And it would have been another three or four months before I went to see the doc. And I pulled, pulled muscle in my shoulder. I was looking for something for a pull muscle. And while I was there, you know, he's a doc, my own, you know, in around my own age, a couple of kids, whatever. And I said to him, here, will you take a look at me arse while you're at it? And, uh, he did. And he said, ah, don't think it's any problem, but we'll get it whipped off because it's, it's a certain size. And then it was just, uh, all downhill three weeks after that. Mm. What, what was it like getting the diagnosis? I'd say you were like, you'd fare the worst, obviously. I, I, I remember finding out I was, it was around this time of the year and uh, the kids were out the back with the wife and the phone rang in the evening, like this evening, you know, bright enough. And I answered the phone and it was the dermatologist who had taken off them all three weeks earlier. And I thought nothing of it. I'd taken out the stitches myself. You know, you weren't going to worry too much about something, you know. (laughs) And uh, he said, look, I'm sorry for ringing you on a Friday evening, but you have cancer and you have it bad and you need to be in hospital on Monday. And that oh was it. I'll never, never forget it. I bet you had the best weekend of your life. <laughs> I suppose, being totally honest about it, like my back was on the wall and I sort of mm. slid down to the floor and it was sort of a realisation that things were never going to be the same again. Mm. And, uh, you know, my marriage wasn't in a huge, great place at the time, but mm. I just knew it was the death knell to it at that stage. That was the death knell. Or did you end up getting separated afterwards? Oh, yeah, a year later. A year later, we were separated. So, but you know, it wasn't something that was new. It was something that was exacerbated by the situation. So I knew that mm. would, but I knew at the time that was kind of the big thing in my head at the time was I knew it was over. You know, I just knew it was. Yeah. Do you know for somebody that's watching that may have been diagnosed with, um, like, what's the chances of survival? What's the treatment like? You know, when you went into the hospital on the Monday after you've been told on the Friday. What did they say to you? Um, nobody will say to you, you have X chance or Y chance. So you Google everything, you know, and, and they say, don't Google. And of course, the first thing you do is Google everything. Yeah. So it was uh, stage four malignant melanoma. And back then, when I looked it up, there was uh, a 5% chance of lasting to five years. And that's where it was at that stage. And it was very, you know, fr- from the get go, I didn't think, you know, 
why me? I thought, well, why not me? <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. going to hit. I think of it like a bullet going around in the ether. It's going to hit somebody. Um, well, it hit me. Well, I'm able to handle it. So, yeah, that's it's probably better that it hit me. But hospital, the first the first set of operations weren't, you know, they were big enough, but they weren't huge. But then, you know, after that, it got big and it got, you know, just bad. There were some fucking awful moments in it. I remember being up in James's and I was after having a blood clot on my lung after an operation to get the lymph glands out and groin. And I was walking around along a corridor, going out for smoke is what I was doing. And uh, on, the, on the way back, I looked down and it was like I was after peeing myself. And I went, fuck's sake, what's this? And it turned out that the lymph fluid in my leg had come through the wound. And it was just like it was seeping all down my leg. But because I'd had a blood clot, they couldn't do anything whatsoever with me they were terrified to touch me so i ended up like with all the i had already had pressure bandages and everything but then uh, this mad big old sanitary towel you know the ones with the hooks on the ends Mm. and having that strapped on where the the wound was to soak up all the the fluids that were coming through but the downside, or the other downside of that was that the wound went necrotic, it rotted. So at night I could smell it and it was making me sick. And I think that's probably one of the, the lowest moments that was in it. What's, that sounds, that sounds horrific. What's a, what's a lymph node? What's the purpose of that it's, in the body? It's, it's like the, the sewerage system for your blood it gathers up all the dirt and crap that's in your blood and it uh, filters it then i suppose through to your kidneys but it's it's like a filter and you have them under your arms in your groin your neck you know and wherever the cancer was closest to like it was my backside so the groin yeah lymph glands were the closest ones Mm. and it's actually they're they're actually quite serious those so i remember when we were kids um my brother uh, thomas he had a leakage under his arm and it was the lymphoid under his arm and he was actually hospitalized and it was quite serious as well. You know, oh, yeah, they're, they're a big part of your, your, your blood system, you know, they mm-hmm. are. But it, once the cancer's in your blood and stage four meant that the, it had gone, about your skin is about four millimeters thick at the thickest point. So when it's stage four, it's four millimeters. It's gone down through into your bloodstream. So of course it's floating around your bloodstream. So the next place they look for it is in your lymph nodes, the closest lymph nodes. And there was another tumor there in the lymph nodes. So they just had to come out, you know? Mm. Do you know, do you know when people speak about cancer stage two, three, four is the lower numbers, the least serious and the higher yeah, number? Yeah. Yeah, you get, if you get malignant melanoma at stage one or stage two, and it's a big thing for lads, you know, out working on sites or mm. cycling or doing sports or whatever like that, you know. Now, mine on my arse, that's not typical, you know. It saw yeah. moonlight, but it never saw sunlight. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's not altogether typical. So, but yeah, you know, it's a big thing for lads. You, you don't think about it. Yeah. Because Crazy. people pe- people outside this, the UV rays can be very dangerous and people that have sallow skin like myself, I go really dark in the sun. But those people need uh, protection too, you know. Um, oh, I need six weeks just to go from blue to white, you know. 
I get a tan off that light bulb before you sat here long enough. That's the way I go. And then I'd hold the colour then for nearly year round, you know, but you still have to be I've some moles on my back and stuff and I'm always I've some scars on my chest as well. I'm always very quick to cover them if I'm taking my top off, which is about three days of the year. <laughs> Do you know yeah, what's Go ahead, sorry, Timmy. For somebody, right, sitting here now just chatting away at you, and we've never met before, me and you, you know. First time we met there was at the beginning of uh, this conversation. And to hear of somebody having a stage four, any form of stage four cancer really, like, is really, really tough. But just having a chat with you here, you know, and having just chatting like three fellas, no crack, no bother, you know. It really doesn't come across like you're somebody that has any form of stage four cancer. It looks like you just get on with it and you just take every day as it comes and you seem so, so calm in mm. the way you talk. And I, I'm looking at you and your energy there, the way you're just chatting and you're so relaxed. You know, you, it's like you're zen dog. Do you do a bit of meditation, Matt? Not a bit, not Jeez. a thing. No, no alternative, no Reiki, no nothing, nothing like it. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> did you, did you, do you know, Fair over player. the years, because you have it a long time, over 10 years, was the first year or so you weren't so calm and you were more worried, but you learned to accept it and live with it a bit more as time goes by? Kind of, I was always fatalistic about it from the get-go. Like, when I looked it up and it said, you know, 5% chance of fire, well, that's it, I'm dead. So, just, uh, get on with it, you know. Um, ah, look, there's, there's times when you're very, very low and it does make you very low, but I suppose like everything else, there's worse things than cancer. I say it all the time. There are worse things than cancer. Not many at I found, you know, marriage breakup was, was worse, harder to handle, uh, mm. harder to deal with. And I agree, you know, there are worse things. And then yeah. when you've been going in and out of hospitals for a while and you get to know people and you've been in the, you know, you've got your chemo and all of that, you just get used to it. You see people dying and that's a terrible thing to say, but you do see people dying. When you survive with it for any length of time, you know, pretty much everybody you know dies along the way. Mm. And so at this stage, if I have to go to hospital front, I just tune out from everything I don't. And I know it comes across maybe as rude, but I don't want to talk to you because I don't want to be sad then when you die. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. That's like a very understandable. Skill. Yeah, I, I just don't want to be sad when you die, you know. Mm. Do you know when people say that they're getting chemotherapy? What exactly is chemotherapy? How is it administered and what's that process like? It's it's a big landscape. There's all different kinds of chemotherapies. The first one I was on was a thing called interferon. And oh, I, I had a friend. I had a friend. He was treated with that for hepatitis C. Yeah, they do. They, they use it for hepatitis C, but they use it for melanoma now. The, Back then, the the success rate or the the change rate or whatever it could do for you was really, really small. But, like, I wanted to throw the kitchen sink at this. I wanted to throw everything at it. So, And I had to argue to get it, and I did. And I've argued with my oncologist tons of times. You know, yeah, he knows I'm an obstreperous bollocks, and he just does. So, you know, it... It, I went, I lost, I went from 12 stone to maybe below 8 stone really, really quick over the course of six months, you know, it was really, but even at that, you don't notice it because you're so sick anyway. 
and mm. you're looking in the mirror and you don't see that change, but other people see that change and you don't feel yourself maybe as sick as you are and you keep trying to do things that you shouldn't be doing and uh, eventually it catches up on you and you end up in you know I ended a couple of periods where I was in hospital for a month at a time and they had to tube feed me at one stage because I just couldn't eat anything and uh, the relief of being tube fed was just unreal that I didn't have to eat that relief was just incredible incredible that I didn't have to try and eat anything Jesus. Yeah, I remember. Amazing. So, oh, sorry, sorry Jim. But when I was a child, when I was about twelve, I was in hospital. Um, my appendix had burst. Uh, I was in hospital for about a week. No, before like I, I went into the hospital with a pain in my side, and I was in there being monitored for about a week, and I, just, I got really, really sick, you know. And eventually, they put a camera into me, and all my appendix had burst, and the internal organs were infected. But I was in there for about four weeks on drips, but eventually the veins started closing up, you know, so they had one of those lines into the juggler vein, you know, a big white tube. That's right, you know, yeah. One of those That's the one, yeah. It's not That's nice getting one. that in and out. <laughs> no, no, like I lost track of the, the, the number of operations. There's been a lot, you know, and some are bigger than others and some are just mainly minor. I kind of stopped counting at around 25 and I oh. to go back and... But, you know, some of them might be only getting that tube into your neck. You have to be under a general anaesthetic. And, this, you know, yeah. I wouldn't call that a big one. You know, that to yeah. me wouldn't be a big, a big operation. But they're all operations. And I've learned over the years to fight the anaesthetic. Uh, you know, you know, they say count to 10, do your best to get to 10. Because, man, the rush is unreal. You know, I know. <laughs> it just is. <laughs> I remember I got um, I'd shoulder surgery there about two years ago. And I was, you know, I'm in recovery from an opiate addiction. I was like, I don't want no opiates. You know, I don't want no opiates, whatever. And um, when I was waiting to go into theatres, you know, just the moments before I was being administered the anaesthetic, I got an awful panic attack over me. Like, they mm-hmm. give me a shot of this stuff. It was um, a benzodiazepine. It was like a, a liquid Valium. A shot of that, and I, you know, I could immediately recognise that feeling. I, yeah. I know what this feels like, <laughs> and I like it. Yeah. This is nice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like, that was uh, your free ride, James. I think so. For that, that was boat, your like, one free ride. That was your, yeah. you know, and one that's not said, counted. I, I didn't even get ten seconds out of it to give me the shot. Counted ten. I say I was for five seconds. I was fucking enjoying myself. You know. <laughs> yeah, but I do. I do now. Like. You have to find something to break it up if you're going in for anything, you know. You do yeah. have to find so you take a little bit of joy anywhere you can get it. If you just want to tell us about how you got into the podcast and so Tony. Oh Martin. Yeah, I <laughs> like Tony Gro- I like Tony Groves on the head. Gillian <laughs> <laughs> yeah, will be throwing you out of the gaff there now soon, I'd say, James. You'll yeah, probably saying his name in your sleep and everything, I'd say. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I got into it because I was doing blogs and some fella said to me, look, get in touch with this other guy. He's on Twitter doing all the same stuff you're doing. So got in touch with him and we're two very, very different people. I mean, people think we're best of buddies. We're not best of buddies. We move in different circles. We have different opinions. We fight like unreal fight. We roar at each other. But it's all about we can do this. So we do do it. And regardless of differences, we do it. So he just said, let's do a podcast. I didn't know what a podcast was, but I said, we'll do it anyway. And I arrived out at his house the next Thursday and we just started with our first one. And 
very quickly realized that just me talking to him, there's not much mileage in that. You need somebody else in there talking with you. So that's when we started with the guests. Yeah, we had a similar experience myself and Timmy. You know, we had the idea for the podcast. The first four podcasts was myself and Timmy. And then we were like, we need guests. You know what I mean? We need people to come in. So like, you definitely need, you de- definitely need a guest. Do people, is it, is it easy for you to find guests to come on? Um, I know like you're one of, you're one of the biggest podcasts, one of the most popular podcasts in Ireland, but you started, you start small and build yourself up. Yeah, um, Tony's great at, at meet and greet and schmoozing and all of that. Whereas I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't have, it's a skill set, you know, it is a skill set and he's really good at it. I don't have that skill set or I'm not arsed to learn that skill set. I think is more honestly. Um, so yeah, we can reach out. Like there's people I can reach out to. There's people Tony can reach out to. But again, you only built that over four years of podcast and that's the only way to build it. Mm. Yeah, and you you um you were uh, speaking before the public accounts committee there recently. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, first, like a lot of people know that watch our podcast, they will never have heard of public accounts committee, um, or what that process is. Yeah, do you want to just kind of give us a, a kind of an overview of what that is and what you were doing there? Um, back about uh, twenty one years ago, I was a motorcycle courier. And um I was working, you know, when you're working your arse off at a job and really putting the time in and putting the hard effort in. And uh I, I started to see that you know, I went from bar work into being a motorcycle courier from one to the other. And I didn't see any difference between what I was doing working for somebody behind the bar and what I was doing working for this crowd. And But they called me self-employed. I was going, I can't be self-employed. I mean, that's nonsense. I know what self-employed is and that's not it. So I decided, I thought, geez, there must be diddling the state on this if they're calling us self-employed. So I got in touch with revenue first and then social welfare. And I was going, you know, these guys are diddling you. I should really be an employee. You sh- you know, you're missing out on tax. And they couldn't give a shit. And it was really, they couldn't give a shit. They didn't care. So I found a formal process called uh, SCOPE. It's an office in the Department of Social Welfare. And I said to them, I'm not self-employed, I'm an employee. And that was the start of a 21-year journey of exposing what's going on. And it's it's basically what bogus self-employment is, is that your employer takes you on, but they tell you you're, you're self-employed if the tax man asks. You know, it used to be called on the lump or whatever, but, you know, the rules have tightened over the years, but it's a different different piece now. It's been done on an industrial scale and it's costing you, what I keep telling people, it's costing you your pension. You're now working until 67 because they won't collect employers' PRSI. And it's also costing loads on tax. I mean, a billion a year is the conservative estimate of what this costs. And at the end of the day, it's people stealing money. It's employers stealing money. And the sta- it's the state's money, our money. They should be going after it. So how come how can how can the state allow this for so long if the state is losing out so much money in tax? Should we think that this is something that they they ran in very quickly? Like, well, you know, every government that's in there is in there for five years. What they want to do is bring out, down the numbers on the unemployment register, no matter what way they do it. If that means sticking you into a job where you're misclassified as self-employed, they don't care. 
They just see it as a way of getting you off the unemployment register. And employers don't want it. They, employers want to be able to to pay you like they do. Like if you were a Mexican, Mexican worker standing at the side of the street and a fella pulls up in a van and you jump in for a day's work. That's what employers want. They don't want any part of holiday pay or sick pay or anything that goes with it. So that's why it works for them. You've no, you've no rights as an employee like you would in oh, most no, organizations. No maternity leave, no sick leave. You don't get to claim the social if you're out of work. You know, it's just a complete and utter con. But they've known about it for, they've known about it going back to the 70s and they never did anything about it. And the result of that now is them telling us that you have to work extra years before you can get your pension. Well, I say no to that. I say go collect the taxes you owe. I have friends in construction, and Tim, you might be able to comment on this, but I, I have friends in construction, and when I tell them, no, I'll take a couple of weeks annual leave in the summer, you know, they don't, they, they don't know what the fuck annual leave is. The annual leave doesn't exist in that industry, it, it seems. Timmy, what do you think? Is, have you, is there an annual leave for construction workers? Or? No. No, um, you get your holidays, and that's it. You get your Easter, Christmas, and summer holidays. You will get your bank holidays and that's it. There's no annual leave. You know, there's no sick days. There's nothing like that. You're paid for what you work for. I think you get a day and a half a month then or something like that. You know, and that's it. Um, I could be wrong with that, no. Um, but I think that's, yeah. that's what it is. But, um, like even a lot of the, in the last few years there, you know, um, for women that are having babies and stuff and their partners and husbands for bigger companies they're allowing six weeks knowing all annual leave for that on top of everything else you know you don't get that they start laughing at you in the construction site if you say oh I'm taking two weeks off there because my wife is just having a baby you see the construction industry is it, it is still and it probably always will be that kind, that masculine kind of image, macho image persona um, that you have to portray. People don't, and employees won't question it, maybe. No. Well, it's, I, I it's, took... It's, 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 yeah, exa- that's exactly it. They won't question it because there's fear of losing your job because it is a hot-headed industry as well. You have to realise well, that. that. That I took 16 lads in the construction sector, brickies and labourers, and... They rang me one Friday evening to say that they were after doing what I did. They went to the scope. Do you remember the lads that were up the, up the crane and they were having the protest a couple yeah. of years mm-hmm. back? Do you remember those lads? Those lads. And they rang me to say that they were after getting scope decisions, that they were all employees and not self-employed, which was the crux of what they were saying all along. And the scope section is the Department of Social Welfare saying, yeah, we 100% agree with you. You are employees, so they've been screwing you out of money. But what happens then is there's another office, a Department of Social Welfare, and the employers can be appealed to that office, and they do. And all these decisions were overturned. Now, there was no new evidence. There was no nothing to allow that, but they did anyway, because they have these deals in place. The revenue and social welfare have deals in place with employers to say, uh, we know they're employees, but we let you away with calling them self-employed. And it's going on wholesale, and that's why I was in the Public Accounts Committee. I was telling them all about it. And uh, it was, it was, a, it was. sorry, that's my dog barking here. Oh, and it was, 
it it was uh, it was a good day because I knew what I was talking about and um, I enjoy like I enjoy doing it now. I enjoy going in and saying this is wrong and this is how you should fix it. Mm. It just shows That's you actually quite power. interesting. No, it's Sorry, very James. interesting. Mm. No, you're fine. I, I'd never heard of it until I've mm. met Martin, you know, and I've listened to Martin's podcast and his appearance and the public accounts committee, and it, it is very interesting. I still mm. can't understand how the state, like, it's not the state stealing from people or not giving people their entitlements. It's, it's, it's employers uh, ripping off employees and the state, and it's some way facilitated by the state. That's I find it hard to understand how the state can facilitate it. You know, like, do you think that this change is imminent, or do you think they're going to they're going to focus on addressing it? Or what, Martin? Well, I'm not giving them any choice, James. That's it. <laughs> I'm not giving. I am a whistleblower. That's you know, mm. that's what I do. I blow the whistle on this. I know more about it than pretty much anybody and that's because I've fought all these cases over the years I've gone in and, and done it for other people and you know I just see a system that's completely broke it's broke on purpose it's costing a lot of money it suits employers and it suits them down to the ground but it doesn't suit the rest of us and uh, why should they get away with it and, I, and I'm I, I was in um, an appeal one day and I was the only person in that room who was actually telling the truth. And it was full of barristers and solicitors and civil servants. But the whole thing was rigged and fixed before I ever went in there. And I only found that out two years later from the Public Accounts Committee that the whole thing had been rigged. And I'm like, these are just bastards. And I'm not letting you away with it. I'm not. Why would I? Mm. Well, but you know what? There's a fair amount of credit due to you, you yeah. know, for any whistleblower. You're going up against a whole system, you know. I think it's some... important for lads, James, and you said it, you'd never heard of it, but a lot of lads have never heard the phrase bogus self-employment or whatever, but they've lived it. And they're yeah. living it day in, day out. And you know yourself, if you're working for yourself on that kind of bogus self-employment thing, your money's never your own. It's never your own. It's going out somewhere else for something else. You never get a break. I mean, I used to hate bank holidays. I used to hate Christmas Day because I couldn't work. So it meant that week that I had one day less that I could work. And I remember giving evidence at one stage against the courier company and saying, look, the manager was saying he's self-employed. He can work for other people if he wants. And I went, but I don't. And when I worked out the days, I went back over three years, I'd taken 12 days off in three years, which was a hell of a lot less than the manager had taken off over the three years. And I said, so how am I self-employed? It's nonsense, complete and utter nonsense. And is a lot of the couriers today still involved in those type of contracts? That's what came out at the PAC is I, I told this story about what was going on. And then the revenue commissioners put in a reply saying that since 1995, they have regarded all couriers as self-employed and classed them as self-employed. And so does the Department of Social Welfare. And that's regardless of, of tons of test cases and tons of stuff going through the courts. They just simply ignored it all. And since 1995, they made a decision. All couriers are self-employed, but they're not. Mm. And it's, it's a, it's 
like you can't make a class decision like that you can, because no such thing exists in Irish law. You can't say all these people are self-employed. No more than you can say all journalists are self-employed or all doctors are self-employed. You can't do it. It's nonsense. Just because they're, and they call them Schedule D workers. I mean, you're bottom of the ladder. And just because you're bottom of the ladder doesn't mean you can be denied rights. Doesn't mean they have the right to say, no, you can't have holiday pay. You can't have sick pay because we want to keep the unemployment figures. Then, fuck you. Mm. Fair play, Tony. Yeah. Seems like you're really, it's like a Robin Hood story. You're really fighting for people that really haven't got the, the voice for themselves, really. Yeah, and I've, I've, what have I got to lose? I've nothing to lose. I mean, that's, exactly. I say it about this country. It's not a great country. It's, you know, Midland, there's a lot of things wrong with it. But they can't take you out and shoot you for saying what you say. Mm. They can't arrest yeah. you. They can't bang you up for saying it. So, so you know, that's a huge power that we're given. And people don't use it. People are afraid. I mean, the amount of people have come up across that are afraid to speak out. And I'm going, afraid of what? Afraid of some gobshy up in the door. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? Mm. You think you're afraid. Do you, know yeah. when you're, do you know when you're starting out with your crusade, if, if I can call it that, um, how, do you, how do you get credibility? Are you being dismissed at the start? How, like, what's the process of getting a seat at the Public Accounts Committee? Being a sneaky bastard, James, and I'm really, <laughs> really honest about it. You have to work the room. Yeah. Um, you have to work people. You have to collaborate with people. Um, you have to do so. And there is, I work with a group of, separately work with a group of whistleblowers, and these are top-notch people. They've all been through state processes. You know, they've all done the whistleblower submission thing. And, and, these are really good people and they all say the same thing. It doesn't work. None of it works. You know, you never get a resolution to anything. It never happens. So I kind of make up my own rules as I go along and, and there's no rules there to help me. So I'll make up my own rules and I do make up my own rules. And a lot of it is about networking, but it's also about educating people. It's taken me 20 years to get people up to a level of understanding. Of yeah. what's going on. When I say bogus self-employment on Twitter, people now know what it means. Whereas 10 years ago, nobody knew what it meant. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's brilliant. And the heart is shack. It does raise awareness and a, multi, a multitude of social issues and, and political issues. If we can talk about the heart is shack, and your podcast is the Echo Chamber podcast. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Um, who's your favourite guest? Um, oh. What was your favourite podcast? If you could pick one or two. God, there's been, there's been a couple. There's um, there's a, a woman, Sinead Marcier, and we, we invited Sinead in. And Sinead is, does all the, the green, the environment and stuff. I mean, she's just brilliant. She is brilliant. But she's very quiet in herself. Um, You know, she's not loud. She's not brash. And she came in and she started to speak. And she's quiet. And, and I just looked at Tony and went, this is just gold this is she she was brilliant and i mean brilliant and then there was another man simon mcgar and he does all data protection gdpr stuff and about two seconds after simon started speaking we just knew put down the microphones and let the man run doesn't matter it's an hour and a half two hours just let him run he you're never ever going to get at him like this again and it's ordinary people it's the real you mean 
you speak to people, or, or you know, I like to consider myself an ordinary person. You speak to ordinary people with extraordinary stories, extraordinary mm. stories, and I'm always amazed by people. I and mean, I find people amazing. I, I mean, I have a real kind of positive outlook on people that we are on balance better than you know, better than bad, you know. And and I think you just need to give people a chance to talk, and and. They're great. They're just fabulous. And the stuff people are doing that you have no idea about, I just think, I'm always blown away by it. Always. Yeah. Um, I, we, we, are, we always said as well, especially, you know, during COVID, because we, we, we only started our podcast in June last year, which is nearly a year ago. I know it was the height mm. of COVID, but it was just a real honor and a privilege to be able to meet interesting people every week. Just people that have interesting stories and, you know, just to be able to give them a platform. Um, so it's a real honour to to host the podcast, and it's it's a real honour that people would enjoy it so much that they'd send you so many comments and get so many downloads and views. You know, it's, uh, it can be a real surprise. I love your platform, and I, I love your podcast. I love what you're doing, you. and you're talking to ordinary people. Now, if I've one thing I'd say about the the echo chamber, we do, but we're we're Dublin. We're in Dublin, so naturally the people you get to speak are either living in Dublin or from Dublin. And it's a different, what you have is a different, a, di- a different listenership to what we have. And I love your listenership. I wish I had your listenership because they're the people I should be talking to about bogus self-employment. They are, without yeah. a doubt. Yeah. Cause a lot of our listeners would, they, they mightn't have any, um, formal academic education, yeah. which is, which is fine because we're from working class neighborhood. Um, and who we are as people in recovery that have been through prison. A lot of people would come from similar backgrounds, you know? So, and you're the like, one, we, you know, when you don't, you know, you get a lot about people talking about I have a degree and I can't get a job. When you've no degree and you've no formal education, you know, there's a lot more doors closed to you and there's a lot more limits on what a good job is. You know, it's hard to get a good job. I mean, I know I've been there myself. I've gone through them and I know exactly what it's like. To, and yeah. then when you do land on a good job, you just don't want to give it up and you'd, you'd rather everything was above board and straight, you know? I know, I know. And you know, our podcast now has been shown inside in Irish prisons, which is yeah, great. Well, I think that's great. And I do really think that's great. I remember... Uh, like, like one of the people I like listening to, or used to like listening to, was John Lonergan. He understood, and he was the, he was the governor of Mount Joy. And I yeah. listened to him a few times, and he was an interesting man, because I know that the, the persona that you listen to on the radio is probably completely different to the persona he has to be within the prison service. Yeah. But I thought he had a great understanding of who was in prison and why they were in prison. And it comes yeah. back to everything. It's like houses and everything else. There's people who are just locked out. It's not that they're locked in prison. They're locked out of life first and then they end up in prison. You know, and it, it, that's, I thought he was a really interesting guy. And I think the whole prison experience in, in Ireland, and I know, um, Senator, is it Lynn Renan is, is trying to do work on this as well. Is that when you come out of prison, you're a huge disadvantage job wise, house wise, everything. And I, I've known lads who've gone in and, you know, done a bit of time and they come out and it's just a different life then. It changes everything. Yeah. And we've had Lynn Ruan and John Lonergan on the podcast, um, a few months back. They're not two great people, two great advocates that advocate in the areas that we, we touch on as well. 
Um, there was another thing there I wanted to say. Um, oh yeah, do you know when you're doing the Sunday shows? Yeah, is are they, are they your favourite gig? It seems like um, like oh, for yeah, people that yeah. don't know, the Tartashak do a live show on a Sunday, and it's, it's, it seems to be a good crack. I was on one or two of them. Yeah. To be honest with you, to be honest with you, I feel kind of intimidated on those because they are very political, and I wouldn't be um, like I, I'd have some awareness around politics, like but. I, I feel way out of my depth when you start talking about politics. I suppose politics like anything else. Um, the longer you spend, like it is a sport, really. Like it's tribal. It's It has all the elements of sport. It has tribes. People yeah. support different teams. It has all of that in it. And if you immerse in it just a little bit, it's addictive. It's addictive, without a doubt. It's addictive. But you, you got to get that little immerse first. And people are turned off because they're meant to be turned off. You're meant to be bored. They don't want you known. They don't want you involved. They don't want to hear your voice. Stay away. Keep away. So I love when people get involved. You know, it is, if you're not interested in politics, politics is interested in you, even if it's just to keep you not interested in politics. Um, the Sunday show, Tony will tell you, I'm not great for early rises and, you know, to be up and ready for a podcast at noon on a Sunday. I can think of better things to be doing at noon at on a noon. Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> I know. And Tony's after the 20 kilometers run, but he's top off then by the time uh, look, the podcast starts. When I tell you we're real different people, he's up at six o'clock in the morning, gone to bed at 10. You know, yeah. 10, I'm just like, just that's three, four cups of coffee in and I'm beginning to think about what I'm going to do with the day. Yeah. But you know, the thing about politics is I have an interest in politics in certain certain strands of it, let's say, or certain topics, but I just can find the whole thing very depressing. I was on, um, I was on um, a panel discussion there this evening with um, uh, Father Peter McFurry and uh, Dr. Sharon Lambert. And one of the one of the guests or one of the people in the audience asked me, like, how do you stay motivated, you know, when you come up against um, obstacles in government and policies and stuff like that? And so it was a good question because you know when you're when you're when you're aware of inequalities in society and you see that there's no will from the government, it can it can be very um, disheartening. So I I try to focus my energy then on yeah having that awareness, but trying focusing on the micro level, you know, and trying helping individuals and kind of doing my piece and the bit of advocacy with the podcast and, you know, helping people in my employment and stuff like that. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at. But I know it is, it does take the likes of yourself as well to challenge the state structures, you know, but I just think that my niche is helping individuals and maybe, um, you know, I, f- f- for example, in the last two days there, like, we're saving, we're in a one-bedroom apartment, right? We've very little space, but we're saving for a deposit. And yesterday, or the other day, the government said in Cork, uh, an affordable house in Cork is classed as 400 grand. That's about 130,000 more than we'll be allowed for the mortgage. That's actually very depressing. And then the fact that we had somebody on a radio station here uh, yesterday morning on Neil Prendeville, which is the big talk show here in Cork in the mornings. This lady, she's self-employed. She's been, um, she got the green light for a mortgage, um, and she's show, she turned up to like 10 viewings, right? Um, and there was this lady at all, there was like a gang at all the viewings because there's so much competition. And she was after seeing this lady at the viewing, so every time this woman went for a view, she didn't get it, you know, she outbid every time. But she kept on seeing this same woman, 
and she thought, God love her, she must be in the same situation as me, you know, she can't. And she went over, she got chatting to her, and she says, are you finding it difficult too? She says, God, no, she says, I'm just buying this on behalf of my investors. Your mom yeah. was going around buying up all the single bed properties in Cork City, and yeah. money wasn't money wasn't an option. That's very depressing, uh, Martin. But mm. it's depressing if you think you can't change it. I get, I get that. I get it's depressing if you think you can't change it, but you can. In fact, you're the only one who can. And that's for every individual. Government's shiting itself now, for want of a better phrase, because housing, after 20 years of making an absolute mess of it, it's now on the agenda. That was inevitable. It was going to happen. It was definitely going to happen. And they deserve a kicking over. I mean, they deserve an awful kicking over. Why? The way I look at it now, when you have foreign investors coming in like that, and they're able to buy up big swathes of cities, and nobody gave a shite when it was cities, but when they're buying up estates that could be estates for first-time nice middle-class buyers, then people care. Then they give a damn. But they've been buying up the apartments and stuff like that for years, and Mm. nobody gave a damn. But we can change it, and we certainly can. It's completely up to us. I never think of government as this this thing over there that I can't influence or I, I can't do anything about. I mean, any of us that know local county councillors and politicians tell you half of them are complete and utter gobshites and you'd run circles around them. And that's the God honest truth. They're there as a, as a popularity thing. But if you threaten their seats in any way, you'll get them to dance to your tune. And it's just about voting differently. Um, Knowing what you're voting for and knowing, I mean, if you're 30, 35, 40 years of age and you haven't got a house and you vote for Fianna Gael or Fianna Fáil, you're never getting a house. You never are. And you've just voted to make sure you never are. So why yeah. would you? I know the big problem around here, Tony, where, or Martin, where we're from is like when you have elections, you might get 25% turnout, you know, um, yeah, and it's, yeah. it, it's a big problem, like. But do you not think that that's built in? They don't want you interested. They, they, they don't want you interested. The language of politics excludes you. Everything about politics excludes you. But that's deliberate to keep you excluded. Because if the turnout is is low, and typically in elections, you know, 60 to 70%, that means that more people never vote for a party than ever vote for a party. And they're the people that can change the country. Yeah. And it is people who are told politics is nothing to you. It means nothing to you. Just do as you're told. Whereas if you took a little bit of interest, and it's only a little, you don't have to be, you know, mastermind at any of it. And just even look at who who's going to build houses, who's going to build social housing, who's going to build public housing. And if that's not on the list, well, then don't vote for them. It's that simple. Don't vote for them. Yeah. I think the next time... Um uh, election comes up now like we will use the, the the podcast as a platform just to bring around the kind of a critical awareness of the importance of it and it doesn't matter if you don't vote for Sinn Féin or um, Social Democrats even if you voted for Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael it's just to to become a part of it you know and kind of don't feel that uh, your your vote doesn't matter because it definitely does that's something that was bared into us as young people you know my mother was always political she used to um, be involved with the Socialist Party here in Cork, and my cousin um, is a TD for Sinn Féin here in Knockneheny as well. So we were always kind of politically aware. It was always kind of bred into us, you know, that these are our politics, and 
these who you vote for. I remember, we used to be driven down to the vote, voting booth and told vote for him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he fixed the roads. He fixed the roads. Yeah, yeah but, but it something is, that it is something, something that you would never do. Something that you would never do is vote Finnegal. Definitely yeah. vote, not for Finnegal. Not, not, no, not from working class areas. You're not going to vote no. Finnegal. They're not there for you. They don't care about you. Yeah, you know, if you buy the Irish Times every day. If you work in, in, uh, down in Silicon Docks in Dublin, that's your party. That's who you want. But, you know, if you're somebody who's just trying to graft and get through, no, that's not who you want. No. Mm. Well, look, Martin, we won't keep you much longer. It was a pleasure talking to you, and I'd uh, love to do it again. And uh, if you're looking for a couple of uh, cockfellas for the Echo Chamber, give us a shout. What I'm re- <laughs> I tell you what I'm really looking forward to. I'm looking forward to when this, when we can get out and about and we can move and do live shows. And I'm really, and I know Tony's spoken to the two about this, I'm looking forward to coming down to, to Cork and doing a live show, which is, that's what I'm really interested in, because that's where the real crack is, when you get that wow. real interaction with people, and it's unpredictable, and I love the unpredictable of it all, and uh, that's what I'm really looking forward to, and it's years since I was down in Cork, years and years, I have a cousin out in Boerbwey, um, she has oh, a little yeah. small holding out there in Bowbury, a couple of cows, a few trees, you know, so, but she's a dub <laughs> true and true. But she moved yeah. down to Bowbury and she wouldn't be shifted. There isn't a way you'd shift her out of it. So I'm dying to get down again. I love the place. Love it. I know. And if we can, like, we had, um, small gigs lined up there last October. We had every man limited capacity now for COVID and the Kino and another one or two, but they got cancelled. But they're all options that are still there. And in, since, that time we've grown, like we've doubled our following in the last two or three months alone, you know. And I think that we could get a good crowd, and I think it would be great crack, you know, to do a live gig and have that ah, energy. Look, what I'm looking for is a live gig in, in Derry where we have yourselves with myself and Tony, maybe Vicky, Caroline on stage, and some guests from from up north as well. And we just do a rip roaring show up there in all different aspects of things. And it's that kind of thing I'm looking forward to. I mean, it's great crack. It's great. Yeah. We might make any money out of it, but we'll have a ball. Mm-hmm. That's the thing about this podcast, and you make fuck all over it, but it's great fun. <laughs> you no, know, you're not going to be rich out of it. No, no. But yeah. it does serve a purpose in that. And you said, like, Tony does good banking stuff, and Rory, who does the Reboot Republic, he does great stuff on the house, and Rory's incredible on the house. And I do the bogus self-employment, but we don't need to go to journalists and say, here, will you print this story or will you talk to me? We can just do it. Just put it out there and people listen to it. And that's the beauty of podcasting. You can, you can bypass mainstream media and just do it for yourself. Exactly. And like we're one part of Tortoise Shack, the echo chamber, as you said, there's five or six different podcasts on it. I know Tony does a lot of the donkey work in the background. You know, and never lets us forget it. And never no. lets us forget it. <laughs> but, um, I think if, if people wanted to support support you guys, they can do that through the Tartar Shack Patreon. It's for a very small amount, and you get an an unbelievable amount of content. And a lot of a lot of the content there will be exclusive as well for the patrons. Yeah, the way it works is, look, we give out a lot of stuff for free, um, if you think, and it does, what we do has a value, I mean, we put time, effort into, you know yourself, lads, you know yeah. exactly what it's like, so if you enjoy listening to them, you know, it has a value, so throw the price of a cup of coffee in, and it's patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack, and that covers all the pods, 
you know, nobody's making money out of this. All we're trying to do is keep the podcast platform going. That's all we're trying to do. And we're having an impact. And we are definitely having an impact. We're having an impact socially, housing, politics, banking. And it's just people. We're just ordinary people, same as yourselves, who said, right, we can do something. Yeah. Yeah, and look, continued success and more power to we. And it's great for us to be associated with you. I was honoured when Tony asked because I was a fan from afar. And when Tony, you know, when Tony um, started uh, slid into my DMs on Twitter, I was, it's very flattering, you know, to get the acknowledgement of somebody that I respected. Like, so it's great for us to be associated with you. And um, here's to a long continued success. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> no problem. Look, we leave it there, Martin. Thanks very much. Lovely. And it's a, it's a nice chat to you. Nice to meet you, Timmy. So I'm looking Thanks, forward yeah, to getting down there. Pleasure to meet you too. Yeah, you you know, uh, I wouldn't be you. very vocal now when it comes to politics. Yourself and James, they would chat away. <laughs> like, but uh, them, <laughs> you know, right. I, I, I just enjoy listening anyway and you know, you have a learning scoops, something Timmy? new. Me? Yeah. I'm off for 10 years. Oh, you're off. Well, I'll tell you what. We'll go down. Yeah. We'll have coffee. I love I'll, coffee. I'll, I'll have a good cup of coffee with Jam. We'll have a good crack. Trust me. Yeah, we'll have a good yeah, crack. We'll, anyway. we'll have a bit of crack down there. Yeah. And a T-bone <laughs> steak. <laughs> now, as long as yeah. I, I do take the piss out of Cork every now and again, but it's yeah. good-natured ribbon, I have yeah, to say. It is good. We're well used to it. So we're as long as you it. don't kill me when I down it, Boherb away, you down that way when I get down there. <laughs> Come here, Boherb is a good spin. Boherb is, is, is it, where is it? Down towards, um, oh, geez, what part of Cork is it? It's, it's in, I tell you what, it's, it's in the middle spin. of no, nowhere, and I stood out one evening out in the farmyard and I looked around and there wasn't a light, not a light anywhere. Anywhere I looked yeah. I couldn't see light and that's not, you know where I live now, you look around and there's lights everywhere. Yeah. That's down towards um, Kerry, it's just on the border of Kerry, down towards that's uh, right. that's Valley right. Desmond. Yeah, it's not too far, yeah, yeah you can yeah, go out yeah. to Killarney. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not a bother. Look, when you're on the cock anyway, we'll get a steak and look, we're going to sell out the everyman anyway before you know it. Yeah, everything will sell it out. <laughs> See you lads and thanks, thanks for your sure. Have a good God one. Bless. God bless, pal. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.